The sermon I am about to read is from the hand of the Reverend Peter Holfleur from the Ancaster Canadian Reformed Church. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like you to think for a moment of the last three prayers that you personally offered to God, whether privately or maybe in the family circle. In any of those prayers, did you pray for the coming of God's kingdom? How about in your last ten prayers? Did the topic of God's kingdom come up, or the fulfillment of God's kingdom? Did it come up as one of the key desires of your heart? Something you pondered carefully and sincerely made pleas to the Lord for? I have to say for myself that the answer is sadly no. I suppose for many of us it will be something similar. And I say that's sad because the Lord Jesus taught us otherwise, didn't he? We saw last time that the first request we are to make in our prayer, our top priority in life, is to hallow the name of our Father in heaven. That's something we already have a challenge with, don't we? How many of our prayers don't simply start with a simple address and then launch into a list of our needs and requests? However legitimate those needs are, the reality is we hardly stop to praise God in our prayers, spending time adoring His majesty and everything else about Him. And if we did that more often, reflecting on God's greatness reflecting on the miracle of his love, then very likely we would come to honor the second petition better. We would more often start to think of his kingdom and start to pray about his kingdom. For the Lord Jesus gives us this matter as our second priority in prayer. Right next to praising God, we are to pray for his kingdom to come. The Father's name and the Father's kingdom are supposed to be our top priority in our prayer. Why is it that it's so often at the end of our prayers, or maybe not in our prayers at all? So what we need, brothers and sisters, more than anything, is to have our hearts changed around in this respect. Even though we are certainly God's people and followers of Christ, we are so easily distracted from what our priorities should be. Too often we have our priorities upside down. Well, this afternoon we hope to get our priorities right side up as I bring you this word of the Lord framed as a prayer. Father, light our lives, Father, light our hearts on fire for your kingdom. Father, light our hearts on fire for your kingdom. Kindle in us, first of all, a love for our king. Second, a love for our king's subjects. And third, a love for our king's triumph. When Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, what was he teaching us to pray for? Well, we know that the you, the your, that he's speaking of is our Father. That's how the prayer begins. But what is meant by the Father's kingdom? And how is it that his kingdom comes? Isn't a kingdom something that exists or doesn't exist? If we think of an example of a human kingdom like the United Kingdom, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, we know that it exists as a defined territory. Would we ever ask, would we ever wish, would we ever speak about the kingdom, the United Kingdom under King Charles, that it might somehow come or come about? Would we ever talk that way? It's an unusual way to speak. 
And outside of the Lord's Prayer, I don't know if we would ever naturally speak that way about a human kingdom. Well, brothers and sisters, we might talk that way if we still lived in the age of kingdoms, when kings regularly fought against one another, or when there were rivals within a given kingdom trying to take over the kingship. Imagine that situation for a moment. A servant, let's say high up in the palace, gets it in his mind that he wants to be king. So he secretly makes a plan with a number of lower servants to find a way to get rid of the present king and install himself as the new monarch. The Bible gives us an example of such an attempted coup in the person of Absalom. Absalom was more than a servant in the kingdom. He was one of King David's sons. And yet he plotted to kill the king. He plotted to become king in his place. And to do that, Absalom even started a war. Now just for a moment, picture yourself in that circumstance. In this situation of strife and warfare, with the true king being challenged by an illegitimate usurper. There would be people following the true king and supporting David, and there would be people following the rebel Absalom. And people on both sides would be hoping and wishing and praying and fighting for the cause of their particular leader. What would they be praying for? The followers of David, for example, they would be praying for David's kingdom to come. That is, to advance, to become fully established, to become the recognized kingdom without any challenger. And Absalom's followers would be wishing the opposite, wishing for Absalom's kingdom to come, to be established, to set up, to be recognized as the only true king. In that situation, David, we know, is the legitimate true king appointed by the Lord. But David's kingdom is under attack. It's being undermined. And many Israelites do not want to rule under King David any longer. They would rather be governed by the sweet-talking Absalom. They would rather have Absalom's kingdom come. Well, brothers and sisters, when you understand that background of talking about a kingdom coming, then you start to understand that the second petition of the Lord's Prayer is a battle prayer. It's a battle request. The only reason the second petition exists is because our Father's kingdom is under attack by an illegitimate usurper. You wouldn't need to pray for a kingdom to come to be established unless there's something that's opposing that kingdom. What Jesus is highlighting here is that the royal rule of his Father, it has enemies, it has opposition. There are hearts, many hearts even, that do not want God the Father to rule over them. And do you know, brothers and sisters, what the most dangerous opposition to the Father's kingdom is and where it's to be found? If I were to ask you, which enemy of God the King do we need to watch out the most for, what would your answer be? Your thoughts might go to Satan, and certainly Satan is a vicious enemy. Maybe your thoughts go to evil people who publicly express hatred for Christ and actively do whatever they can against the rule of Jesus. And they too are powerful enemies that we have to take seriously. But the most dangerous enemy of the kingdom of God that we face, brothers and sisters, that you and I, that we face, brothers and sisters, that you and I see when we look in the mirror, that's the enemy that's the most conniving. 
The rebellious heart that beats in our own chest does not want Jesus to be king. We have a natural disposition against God the Father, against God the Son. And we need to target that opposition that exists in our own hearts to remove that opposition first and foremost. Your kingdom come is a prayer for heart change in the first place. That's what the catechism is getting at when it says, summarizing what the petition means, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. We don't like to submit to the Father. Satan and the world's attacks will come up a little bit later in this answer of the catechism, but the first thing we need to be aware of is this natural opposition, this sinful inclination of our own hearts to hate God and love ourselves. That's been our MO since the Garden of Eden, where we humans put the crown on our heads in disobedience to God and said, we're going to rule ourselves. We're going to rule the world. Our starting point, brothers and sisters, the instinct in our heart is, I am king. I am boss. I am Lord of my life, and I'll do exactly as I please. We have little sayings, little ways of communicating these things to each other. The kids will say, you do you, I'll do me. A previous generation might simply say, each to his own. And the message of either is this, don't bug me, I'll do what I want to do. It's no wonder then that we do not easily or naturally think about or pray about the kingdom of God. It's not natural for us to want to pray for the rule of our Father, for that rule to flourish. And so we need to reorganize our thinking, and we need to come with that prayer. Father, kindle in our hearts a fire for your kingdom. Let that burn in me. And really, that starts with having a heart that's full of love for the King. Our Father's kingdom will never be our top priority unless we love our Father with all our heart, soul, and mind. This is the greatest battle that we face. We see this in the parable of the two sons, which we read in Matthew 21. It's a description, this little parable that Jesus speaks. It's a description of the church community in the days that Jesus walked the earth. It's a picture of the covenant people. The Israelites were all heirs of the kingdom. But when their heavenly father asked them all the very same question, two answers are given by his children. The first son says, I will not. The instruction was, son, go and work in the vineyard. The first son says, I will not. What kind of an answer is that? That's an answer of disrespect, isn't it? The kids know this. If you say to the father who's giving you a clear instruction, I will not do what you ask. You're disrespecting. You're disobeying. It's rebellion. And clearly, this son has no use for his father. He goes off and does his own thing. But something happens to this son. Sometime later, the son turns around and repents. And he actually goes and does what the father tells him to do. He goes and works in the father's vineyard. The son has a change of heart, and he turns to love his father. Well, this son, says Jesus, represents a certain group among the covenant people that represents the tax collectors and prostitutes, the sons and daughters who first chose to pursue a life of selfish desire, 
but later came to regret it and turn their backs toward turn their back to their God. Jesus says about them, they are entering the kingdom. That's one son, one part of the covenant community. The other son answers differently. He instantly says to his father's instruction, I go, sir. I'll do it. I'll get to work right away. You can count on me. That sounds very courteous and submissive. But he never followed through. He never actually did the work. His lips spoke love and respect, but his whole lifestyle communicated the opposite. It communicated rebellion. I am not going to do what you ask. I will tell you I will, but I'm not going to do it. This son, Jesus says, represents the Pharisees and the other church leaders of the day who paid lip service to the Father in heaven, but who never had the intention of building up the Father's kingdom. So, brothers and sisters, the natural question comes to you and me. Which son are you? Am I son number one? Or son number two? Pig will or pig won't? Who are you? Please notice that both sons have to have a change of heart, but only one of the sons recognizes it. That's a reminder to us all as covenant children. All church members are born with sinful hearts. We hear that at the we hear that at every baptism again, that the very act of baptism is a reminder that we have impure hearts that need to be cleansed by the blood of our Savior and by the Spirit of our Savior. Every last one of us is born with that self-centered heart. The question is, do we see that in ourselves? And do we turn in true repentance to our Father in heaven? Does each of us pray sincerely and daily, Father, forgive my sinful inclinations and kindle in my heart an overflowing love for you? When that is the disposition of your heart, then we'll be eager to love not just our King, but also the fellow subjects of our King. The Lord Jesus in this parable was speaking of church members, but very easily he applied this lesson to the kingdom of God. We're going to just talk about that connection, church and kingdom. He does the same in the parable of the tenants. That was another warning story directed at the chief priests and the elders of Israel. Because they rejected the father's son, after all the prophets were sent, the father will reject them. And Christ punctuates the message in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. I'm going to take the kingdom from you. He's speaking to the church, the covenant people. They were going to have the kingdom removed from their midst. That means they were already in possession of the kingdom. So the church and the kingdom, they're not identical, but they sure do have a close connection. I point this out because the next thing mentioned in the Heidelberg Catechism explanation is the church. Preserve and increase your church. Some people have scratched their head about that and even thought that was out of place. What does the church have to do with the kingdom? Some people find it irritating or offensive that the catechism brings the church into the discussion on the kingdom. The church to some people seems so narrow. 
so restricted to human institutions like this congregation. But the kingdom, on the other hand, well, the kingdom, that has no human authorities. It's got no human organization or human structure. The kingdom, that's sort of a freewheeling thing. Whoever wants to serve God is by that fact alone serving the kingdom. And they don't have to worry a whole lot about the church, some people think. The kingdom is the thing, not the church. Yet the Lord Jesus never says that, nor does he imply it. Nor does Scripture anywhere teach something like that. In fact, this very parable of the tenants that we read teaches that church members are heirs to the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to such as you, members of the church. And remember that it was Jesus who said this to Peter in Matthew 16. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That tells us that the church belongs to Jesus. He is the church's head. He's the church's leader. He's the church builder. This is his organization, not ours. And what was it? What special gift did Jesus Christ give to his church? The same passage in Matthew 16 says to Peter and the disciples, I will give you the church, the what? The keys of the kingdom of heaven. The church has the keys. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You couldn't hardly get a tighter connection, could you? The keys of the kingdom are handed over to the church of Christ. They have everything to do with each other, the church and the kingdom. The Lord Jesus appoints elders in every church whose task it is to turn the keys of discipline, keys which bring a person in or out of the kingdom of heaven. And let's remember that our Heavenly Father set His Son Jesus where? After He ascended into heaven, He set Him on the throne. The throne of what? The throne of His kingdom, of course. So the king of God's kingdom is the same person who is the head of the church. So really, brothers and sisters, we have to say that church and kingdom are kind of joined at the hip. They're very, very tightly connected. The kingdom of God is simply put, the rule of God. It's wherever God's kingship is recognized and honored and obeyed, there the kingdom is operating. Just in Israel, just as in Israel during the rebellion of Absalom, wherever David's rule was recognized and honored and obeyed, there David's kingdom was operating. So let's ask ourselves a question. In every faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the rule of God, the kingship of God, is that being recognized and honored? Is the king loved and obeyed in faithful churches? The answer, of course, he is. There's certainly a lot of weakness in the church's devotion and efforts, but there is no place on earth that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is so revered and so loved and so followed than in the true church. So think of the church as like the center or the hub of God's kingdom. Kind of like your bicycle tire. You know that the center of your bike tire, there's a hub, right? And from that hub extends spokes to the rim of your tire. So the church is in the center, and the kingdom is like those spokes and the tire around it. The king sends forth his messenger, 
his herald, the minister, to speak to his subjects as they are gathered in the church on Sunday in the hub. In church, the king's word is proclaimed. The king's servants, the elders, they exercise discipline here in the church. And then what happens to church members after church is over and on Monday morning and following? Those church members, they go out into the world, into their various places of employment and endeavors, and they serve the king in those different places. Church members who love the king, they want to live under that king's authority in every sphere of their life, everywhere they go. So these church members, for example, they do things to honor the king's authority in different areas. They'll do things like get together to start a Christian school where the education of the children is under the authority of King Jesus and does everything it can to honor the king. So the Christian school is one spoke of the kingdom. Another church member, kingdom subject, sets up a business and that he or she runs that business according to the principles and ethics of the king's commands, the king's word, the Bible. That's another spoke. Well, still others will get together to work for the Father's honor in the government, or in the arts, or in the sciences, or in the universities or colleges. More spokes. Individual Christians find employment and do their jobs, not in the first place for their boss's eye, but for their king's eye. More spokes. All of that, brothers and sisters, is kingdom activity because it's undertaken by kingdom subjects who are nurtured by the king's word and the king's fellowship every time they gather together as church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they do these various activities, they are intent on serving and honoring their king. So if the church, the gathering of the king's subjects, if it is the hub of the kingdom, then when we pray for the kingdom, we are praying at the same time for the church. And more than that, if we are to love our Heavenly Father and be zealous for our Father's kingdom, that means we need to be zealous for His Son's church at the same time. Father, kindle in our hearts a love for Your people, Your church, a love for Your subjects. So that raises another question for us, brothers and sisters. How is it for you? Do you love the citizens of God's kingdom? The ones that you know best here in the congregation where you are living? Is that something that you pray for? That you work on? That you love the subjects of the king? Do you find it easy to love God's people? Do you pray for your fellow subjects? Do you ask God to bless them? To help them? To purify them? To unify them in the body of Christ? Do you also pray for those members who perhaps get under your skin at times? What about those kingdom citizens that you might be critical of? Do you ask your Father to help you love them too? Preserve and increase your church. That also means, the increase part, that we have to think about future church members, the future subjects of the kingdom who have not yet been gathered into his church who have not yet responded to the king's call to faith, or who maybe have not even heard of King Jesus and God the Father. Do we also have them in mind, just as much as the king does? 
Remember, the Lord Jesus commanded us as church to go out to the nations and make disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So a prayer for the kingdom is also a prayer for mission work. Yes, mission work abroad. Let's not forget about foreign mission work, but equally mission work close to home, in our neighborhoods, where we are called to be a salt and a light. Do we think about our coworkers? Do we think about our customers? Do we think about our neighbor? Do we think about our neighbors as people who might potentially be subjects of the king? They don't know it yet, but they one day might be brought in. And we could be that vehicle that introduces him to faith. One of the king's desires is that sinful people repent and put their trust in the king, King Jesus, and come and join the kingdom of heaven. Father, we need to pray, kindle in our hearts a fire for your subjects, the subjects that you will bring into your kingdom, as well as the subjects that are already there. Open my mouth to speak about your greatness, to speak about mercy, your mercy to my neighbors. Open my life so that they can see your spirit at work in me. Open my heart and fill it with a love for your church, both the members today and those that you will bring in tomorrow. For as the church is preserved and as the elect are gathered into the church, the kingdom of God, it comes. It comes ever closer to the day of our king's ultimate triumph. That battle that we spoke of that's raging in our own hearts is also raging in the human race, and it's raging among the angels. The rebellion of Adam and Eve so long ago, it wasn't just a human thing alone, but it was sparked by the temptation of Satan, who himself had rebelled against the king in the realm of the angels. You know from Scripture that the devil originally held a high position, a place of honor among God's angels. But very much like Absalom, without any reason at all, he turned against his king, his maker, and ever since then, the world has been in revolt, and there's been spiritual war everywhere. That's why a prayer for the coming of the Father's kingdom is at the same time a prayer for the defeat of the devil's kingdom and the defeat of all who are aligned with the devil. These two are at odds with each other. There will never be a reconciliation, reconciliation between God and the devil. The devil has to go down because he is the sworn enemy of God, just like his followers and just like our own sinful flesh. The Catechism puts it this way, destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Every conspiracy. That word caught my attention, because there's a lot of talk today about conspiracy theories, isn't there? There's the theory that the Chinese have conspired to destabilize Western economies with the introduction of COVID-19. There's the theory that the United States knew all about the Twin Tower attacks, but deliberately did nothing to prevent it. Then there's the conspiracy that JFK was assassinated by his own government. Just the top three that I could think of in the last 60 or 70 years. Well, anybody can invent a conspiracy theory. You don't need proof. 
You just have to come up with an idea, and we can argue whether it's true or not. But there's one conspiracy, brothers and sisters, that is absolutely true. It's as real as the nose on your face. God tells us about it plainly in Scripture. And that is this, that, certain, that Satan is determined to break down, in whatever way he can, the kingdom of God. The Bible describes Satan, on the one hand, as a roaring lion, prowling around, seeing who he can attack and eat up. And on the other hand, the Bible says he's able to disguise himself as an angel of light. So that means he can, so that means he can come like a lion and attack with brutal force, like he does in places like China, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, and other countries of that nature. Or he can attack the church and kingdom as an angel of light in a very subtle way. He sounds good. It sounds so pleasant what he's doing, like he does in Canada and in the United States. He just makes these little suggestions. He puts forward these little seeds of ideas that, once germinated, will eventually lead Christians to turn their back on the king. For example, in our Western world, how many believers in churches haven't capitulated, haven't fallen for the devil's suggestion, his lie, that homosexuality is acceptable to God and that it's okay to be gay and Christian at the same time? Or that transgenderism is in line with Christianity? Or that having women exercise authority in the church is in line with God's will? He's just sowing. He's launching these softballs, so to speak, into the people of God. And over time, Christians will take it up. People are slipping away from God's kingdom and they don't even know it. And so we pray in this petition, Father, kindle in our hearts a love for your triumph and for the defeat of your enemies. Because in this spiritual war, there is no neutrality, brothers and sisters. There is no Switzerland. Either we serve King Jesus and we fight for him, or we serve the pretender and usurper Satan. But, beloved, there is only one result if we serve Satan. We will end up sharing his fate, which is a place in the lake of fire. God the Father has already secured the defeat of Satan and his attempted coup. He did it by sending Jesus and having him die on the cross for your sin and mine. His death and resurrection guarantees the breakdown of sin's power. It guarantees the breakdown of Satan's power. King Jesus has done the work of reconciling God's elect unto God the Father and reconciling all of creation to the Creator. And that work cannot be thwarted. Jesus is saying that when he quotes Psalm 118. We're going to sing that in a few moments. But in that passage in Matthew 21, he quotes that psalm to the Pharisees and the leaders of the church. He says, the stone the builders rejected, and the builders are then a metaphor for the leaders of the community. The stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, and the one, on, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's only two results, only two paths to walk, only two choices that can be made. That stone, Jesus Christ, has already fallen on Satan's head, 
and he is bleeding from a wound that cannot be healed. It will kill him. The Father has set Jesus on the throne of power, giving him all authority on heaven and on earth. He is ruling over all, gathering his church, keeping the devil at bay until the moment comes, as we confess it here, the moment that the fullness of the Father's kingdom comes, wherein the Father shall be all in all. That's quite an expression. It comes from the Bible directly. Wherein the Father shall be all in all. You know what that means? No more Absaloms. No more Ahithophels. No more traitors. No more devils. No more demons. No more evil people. No more divided hearts. No more sinful natures. No more brokenness of any kind. Just purity everywhere and in everyone. So that we see and experience our Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit in everything. That's the day we're waiting for, isn't it? Then let's pray. Father, light a fire in our hearts for your kingdom. Amen.